Inescapably foreign. Welcome to Without Borders. I'm your host, Nolan Yuma. Today I'm here with Professor Benjamin Chung. In fact, he was my professor of cultural psychology at UBC. So if you've tuned into the show before, you know that means his lectures have influenced, well, pretty much everything I do here. <laughs> and I also had the honor of talking to Ben's colleague, Dr. Stephen Hine, where we talk about self-esteem, culture, uh, culture and morality. So please make sure to check out that episode as well. That's episode 18. Uh, we might bring up some of those topics again today, but I'm especially interested in learning about Ben's expertise, which is genetic essential, essentialism, culture and sleep, and the most talked about topic on my show, acculturation. Uh, first off, Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm excited to do this. Thanks. How are you doing? Uh, well, I'm excited to have you here. It's been a long time. Um, you probably don't know how much of an influence you had on me, actually, but it's uh, I go through your lecture notes probably once a week for preparing for these uh, <laughs> interviews. And That's great. Yeah. Um, so now, before we get into all of your research, um, I want to get a little bit into to your story because you refer to yourself as a 1.5 generation Chinese Canadian. Yeah. As a, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah. So when we talk about, you know, first generation, second generation, first generation is referring to someone who is, you know, born in the place that they are, that they were growing up in. So when we talk about a first generation immigrant, uh, sorry, not born in the place, they, they moved to the place that they're growing up in now. So a first generation is usually someone who has, let's say, moved from, in, in, in my parents' case, for example, from Hong Kong to, to, to Vancouver. Second generation is someone who is born there. Uh, and then it's more of a sociological term, using the term 1.5 generation. 1.5 generation is that generation sort of in between, uh, where in our first generation, we're now thinking of more in terms of like adults, you know, people who moved in adulthood who've already more or less created their cultural identity uh, mm -hmm. prior to moving. And then you have the second generation that grow up in that new place uh, and sort of expecting to develop more of a, a mainstream kind of cultural identity. The 1.5 is sort of that group where we're in between, we move as kids, and so we have quite a bit of the heritage cultural identity but we also mix in a lot of that 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 new mainstream uh cultural identity as well it's not to say the second generation uh doesn't uh retain any heritage cultural identity certainly it does a lot and a lot of students that i talk that i talk to now uh certainly have that kind of talk a lot a lot about being in that liminal space between heritage culture and and mainstream culture uh, but yeah, 1.5 is just to denote that, sure, we are technically first, uh, uh, yeah, first generation immigrants, but we're also qualitatively, we have very different experiences compared mm -hmm. to other first generation uh, immigrants who move as adults. And I remember learning about that all in your class. And I remember when I first learned the term third culture kid, yeah. Uh, I never heard it before. And then I was like, holy shit, this is me. Yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> we we go through all the the sim not symptoms or just the, um, the things that takes the characteristics. And it was just spot on from my experience. Yeah. And for me, it helped. I, I went to UBC a little when I was a little bit older. I didn't go when I was 18. So I, I had a little bit more experience. Sure. But even then, I was still having some identity issues. And I think even now as an adult, I do to, to a certain extent. Um, but it definitely isn't as they describe third culture kids in the textbook and what I experienced when I was younger. Yeah. Um, and everything we learned in the class, just having that theoretical knowledge kind of helped me to understand myself. And I'm just wondering for you, like I'm, I'm assuming from all the knowledge that you have, um, it probably made you a little bit less confused over time. Or am I wrong in assuming that? Uh, you mean in terms of my cultural identity? 
Yeah, like just just from all your studies, it, did it start to make you a little bit more aware of why you're acting this certain way or maybe why you were confused at certain periods of your life? Did it clear anything up for you? Yeah, it, I, I think uh, I, I think one thing that I'll say is that from my experience growing up in Vancouver, I think because the area that I lived in uh, had such a strong um, immigrant culture and immigrant influence, and the area that I grew up in had a lot of uh, South Asians and East Asian immigrants and immigrant children. Which area? Uh, I was in... uh, So, like, South Vancouver. South Vancouver Marpole area in Vancouver. Um, And that area, yeah, that area is very diverse. Uh, That's close, very close to what people colloquially refer to as the Punjab market um, around Main Street and Fraser Street. And I was closer to, I was just on the west side of of, of all of that. And it was, I, I think that was actually really helpful for me because I was able to uh, develop a cultural identity that felt uh, genuine and authentic to both my cultural experiences as a as an immigrant child, uh, having sort of the everyday influences of the mainstream culture as well, and that's a very different experience, you know, compared to what a lot of my other students who uh, who who grew up as Asian immigrant children whether first for 1.5 generation or second generation or or beyond and then having grown up in a much less diverse uh, Mm -hmm. kind of area that creates a lot more confusion for them because then they don't know how to handle the stark contrast between school culture school environment and home culture and home environment so for me um, I think the area that I lived in was a big advantage for me uh, in not having to feel that kind of identity confusion growing up. I mean, there was always going to be some just because mainstream society has encourages uh, has and encourages different kinds of cultural values and behaviors and such compared to what people might do in the home. Uh, but um, yeah, that that really helps. But if you're asking, you're asking about whether or not the knowledge that I've gained has helped with that. Uh, I think, if anything, it uh, it just it helps me have the language to parse through and to articulate the kinds of experiences that I've had, the kinds of observations that I've made. Uh, I think it has. I think it helps, especially people who haven't been able to think about these things before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it helps people uh, who. Uh, might have had more difficult experiences and more difficult uh, identity confusions and conflicts growing up to navigate that kind of space. So what are, I know it, it varies quite a bit, but what are some of the tools that you could bring up right now for this adaptation period or whether whether there is a more sensitive period for cultural adaptation um, if there are any general strategies for people um, and cultures that that want to adapt, and again, like I on this show, I always begin it by saying it's for immigrants, refugees, expats, or anyone else that feels inescapably foreign. Because sometimes people who who haven't lived in a different country, but their parents come from a different country and they have a completely different value system, they come from a different culture, they also have to tackle with this feeling foreign in a way yeah um so what what kind of strategies come out come out right away like what are some of the main ones you know it's really hard to do this it's really hard to enact any of these things when you're in the adjustment period because that adjustment period is oftentimes when people are quite a bit younger uh, mm-hmm. like early teens mid-teens kind of kind of period uh is is when well Really, any time from birth to like mid-teens is when people are most sensitive to their cultural environment, and so uh, it's it's kind of hard, 
you know, for for us to say, well, kids should be doing this to 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 maximally adjust. I think kids will just naturally um, naturally absorb what is in their environment. Mm-hmm. What becomes a bigger issue is, I think, how parents are handling that process. And I think the parents are oftentimes a primary factor for how successfully the children are able to navigate that difficult kind of um, uh, both period in their lives as well as a difficult cultural uh, situation for them. And I say that because I think oftentimes, and especially immigrant parents, uh, aren't prepared to have these kinds of conversations with their children about cultural disparities and cultural conflicts and and having different cultural identities because they haven't had to deal with that themselves oftentimes, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do you have that conversation about something that you yourself haven't had experience with or you yourself might not understand? Uh, and, And so I think a lot of it doesn't it doesn't actually fall onto the shoulders of the children who are trying to navigate that cultural space. It actually falls on the parents who are, uh, and a lot of children will often, will often say, I didn't ask to come here, uh, which is true. You know, it's the parents who would have done all that preparation work, all that legwork ahead of time to go, okay, I, we're going to do this to prepare for us moving there. But that's mostly in terms of like, let's figure out what school the kid is going to go to or what kind of jobs we're going to get once we get there or what kind of how home we're going to live in once we arrive. But, you know, the children don't have any kind of say in this, right? Whether they are children who are moving as 1.5 generation or children who are not even born and then they will be born in that new cultural space. There's not much for them to do because all they're trying to do is to just grow up. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think ultimately it comes down to the parents and have the parents be more educated and more aware about how to have these conversations and to maybe connect with other parents who've gone through a similar process to, to, to think about how to best support the children's uh, cultural identity and cultural development, how to have those difficult conversations about, you know, what happens when children say uh, to their parents, you know, I need I want you to stop bringing making me bring uh uh paneer to school because the kids are making fun of me for the smell that it has or whatever um and that still happens quite a bit so my students even now talk about how they've had to endure that uh and so how do you how do parents have those conversations so that they can help their children develop a a healthy kind of cultural identity that is representative of the cultural mixing that's in their environment growing up. Yeah. I I think it must be so difficult for parents because I think my parents did an excellent job in many ways, but I got bullied a shit ton when I was younger. Um, It's also, this was, I grew up in a small town. So this was before Nutella (laughs) became a a popular thing. So they were shit sandwiches. Uh, anyways, I've gone over those stories on the show before, so I won't, I won't get into it again. Um, but it's so, I think it must be so difficult to find this balance where you want your child to be proud of their cultural heritage, but you also don't want it to clash with the culture that they're in. And it's like finding that balance that could be very difficult. Yeah, you know, for a lot of parents, I think you'll find that they're... <laughs> their their primary objective is to make sure that their kids don't forget their heritage culture. And I think in many cases, um, they don't want their kids. It's, it's a very weird dynamic where, you know, parents take their kids to this new place, but then also don't want their kids to be like the people who are from that new place. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and and I, I find that to be highly unrealistic, and I I, I and this is why I, again I place a response a lot of that responsibility on the parents that you, you need to you need to prepare yourself for these expectations right that you need to expect that your child is going to develop in a very different way culturally from what you might have been used to uh, growing up in the heritage space. And uh, yeah, have you noticed that 
uh, from, from what third culture kids report um, that they need to lie more. I was lucky that my that was my dad's number one rule. He's like, you can do anything. Like he knows yeah. he knows all my party stories. He knows all the bad things I've done. Number one was like, you never lie to me. But yeah. when I talk to some other um, ch- uh, kids or now adults that are in a similar situation than as me, they had to grow up lying to their parents because the things that their parents said were wrong were accepted with their friends. And if they told their parents the truth, uh, <laughs> they could get beat <laughs> in yeah. some cases or just, just get scolded. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it, I think this is, this, this certainly transcends what, you know, whether someone is their culture or, 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 or immigrant kids, I think in general, you know, when you have parents that tend to be more harsh in their parenting, um, and tend to be much more sort of authoritarian in how they parent their kids, uh, it, it, it compels the child to do what they can to avoid punishment. Right. And so then you do get a lot of that deception. You do get a lot of that lying, uh, and, and, yeah, you sometimes will see we and and I, I will say that this happens quite a lot with immigrant parents because a lot of immigrant parents come from uh I'm thinking in particular about Asian parents who come from a lot of cultures that where there's a lot more sort of you might see a lot more parental surveillance of children's behaviors, a lot more sort of helicoptering of parents, uh, of of their children. Uh, and sometimes the use of corporal punishment is also very common in 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 some uh, parenting spaces in mm-hmm. uh, Asian amongst Asian immigrant uh, parents too, and so I think that kind of parenting often leads uh, kids to develop this tendency of okay, you know I want to do this thing that everyone else is doing, but they're not letting me do it, so I'm going to do it in secret. Because they're gonna yeah. do it anyway, uh, so it's it's it, it's counter into it's counterproductive. Uh, I think that's why in a lot of cases parents end up having a very unrealistic and um, inaccurate mental perception of what their kids are like and what their kids are actually doing. Totally. Definitely. So any parents listening to this show right now, keep that in mind. <laughs> um, and what about for strategies for adults who are adjusting to a new culture? Because sometimes when I talk to people who move to a new country in their 20s and they spend the majority of their adult life in a new country, they also have a lot of the same struggles as I did or sometimes a lot of the same benefits, right? They're able to um, they're more like chameleons. They're able to adapt in different situations, but they definitely deal with this. Oh, I'm I'm becoming so, or I'm I'm finding a new side of myself, and then they start to struggle with this identity. So, yeah. what what kind of strategies do adults have? I think the biggest thing is to understand that identities will change over time, right? Uh, and we we sometimes will talk in terms of studying identity and the formation of identity. Just because we formed an identity and we've achieved an identity after our adolescence or early or, or like early adulthood, it doesn't mean that that identity doesn't, doesn't change over time either. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I think the healthiest thing for people to do is even if they've achieved a certain kind of identity, that they're still willing to be open to the idea that they can explore new things and how their identities can continue to change moving into the future. Now, the way that our, identi- our identities develop oftentimes is a function of our, our environment, right? What, what do we, what kinds of, 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 of possibilities do we see for ourselves in terms of in what directions can our, can our identities develop? Um, and when we go to a new place, we can potentially see new ways, right? New avenues in <laughs> which our identities can develop and change. And so... I think a big part of it is not being, uh, not being worried or scared that oh, I think I'm changing into a different person. You know, as long as you're not doing terrible things as a as a new as a new identity. So um, yeah, 
how how would you define the authentic self? Because that's where sometimes you get in a little bit of a discussion here. It's like, oh, well, if you're changing and adapting, you're not being authentic. And that's yeah. kind of like what Carl Rogers would emphasize, right? The importance yeah. of having this stable core self that that stays the same from place to place. And then you had Gerg and in the postmodern writers who emphasize the importance of having these different identities. What to you is is an authentic self then? So I I don't believe that there is there is like one single authentic self that is stable with you for the entirety of your life. I think for some people that's certainly the case, and so it's easy to talk about that as being the authentic self, especially for people who really only grow up in one place and only know that environment, and so has developed an identity that works for them in that environment. So that mm-hmm. that's that's easy to say that that's your authentic self. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes that authentic self might, uh, no, people don't generally change drastically. I'm not saying that they, they necessarily do that, uh, but that people might add on things to their identities or there might be slight shifts in their identities over time as they get older. Like you'll have people who might've been very, um, very very congenial when they're a little younger or very patient but you know over as they get as they get older they just they don't want to take shit from it from people anymore um and they mm-hmm. become a little more cantankerous uh and it doesn't mean that they're no longer authentic they are authentic because they uh that that's just how they've come to develop over time because of maybe changes in their circumstance or changes in how they're processing uh, their philosophy in in life. So uh, I I there might be this idea of an authentic self. I don't believe that that has to be this perpetually stable constellation of things uh, that that never changes. I don't I don't believe that that's the case. I agree, and I don't even think it's possible in many cases. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Um. And then uh, what about um, the ego death, like this complete loss of subjective self-identity? People talk about that. And I'm wondering what you think about it, because sometimes I relate this feeling of ego death to some of the um, indigenous writers. And when they talk about the mystical and some of these mystical experiences I'll I'll get into it a little bit um, a little bit more later as to why I kind of connect these two, but I'm just thinking for, first of all, what what do you think about this idea of ego death? Is this something that people should strive towards? You think it could be beneficial? It could be harmful? Sorry, I'm less familiar with with the idea of ego death. Can you talk a bit more about that? It relates to this idea of this like some complete loss of subjective self-identity. Um, and well, I mean, that's what I know about it. And to me, I think it's this, this feeling where you don't feel separate from anything else possibly, right? You just, you're so in the moment that you're not, uh, you don't have any judgments about others in that moment. You might not have any judgments about yourself. Um, now that's how I kind of understand it. I might be wrong about this, but th- that's kind of how I understand it. Okay, it sounds it's sounding a little to me like uh, uh, someone who's on psychedelics. And uh, that was going to be my connection a little yeah. later. Actually, <laughs> I was going to bring that up. Yeah, it sounds a little like someone on psychedelics. And I, I, I have, <laughs> I, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I think that the reason why. For example, microdosing psilocybin and other kinds of psychedelics are beneficial for people is because it does allow them to relieve. Because when you're when people are so, I think when people are so conscious of everything, um, it creates the problem that they become, especially in the modern world. Uh, they become worried and concerned about everything and it creates a lot of anxieties that they have about everything. The sort of just losing yourself and losing everything that you are concerned about 
and just sort of being connected with everything and from by all the reports of people who uh, use psychedelics and and similar substances and people who use who who engage in microdosing uh, it's it's a hugely beneficial process for them that is very effective at, at alleviating anxiety effective at alleviating depression and so I think to that extent that kind of experience is has a net positive uh, for for folks now for me uh, psychedelics have had a positive effect positive effect on my life both when it comes to anxiety and depression and then just having fun as well I'll be honest about that yeah Um, and I think it made me a better person in many ways. It makes me more empathetic, makes me connect to nature and have a better understanding of our connection to nature. Also a deeper understanding of that's why I brought up the indigenous writings when they talk about this spirit in nature. And I'm not a religious person, but I feel sometimes the spirit in the nature and I understand those texts on such a deeper level. Um, But then I was thinking about like Michael Pollan and how the the book and now the the Netflix series how to change your mind I'm a huge fan of it and I I agree with a lot of the things that are presented in the book but it's quite anecdotal and a lot of the people there are westerners and mm-hmm. I was wondering about that because I live in Spain right now and the whole microdosing thing, very West Coast, I think. Like yeah. when I go back to Vancouver, everybody's microdosing. Everyone's got their little mushrooms. Everyone's got yeah. their gummies. Yeah. <laughs> I come back here. If I bring it up, like, and I, I try and have a serious conversation, like, oh, this could be beneficial. They just like, they think I'm some hippie. Yeah. They think it's like, they don't even want to read the research. Yeah. And I'm wondering in those cases, would it be beneficial for them or would it be would it have more of a negative outcome because they weren't raised in this culture where it's more accepted i mean it's only recently that microdosing has become so accepted on the west coast yeah um but still i wonder if it's having a more beneficial um more beneficial outcome because people are part of this culture i think when there is a culture that's supportive of the use of that kind of substance uh that's that is important for predicting i think better outcomes from using that substance right so for example uh we're thinking about the high the high level of criminalization of various other forms of 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 uh drugs and narcotics and i'm thinking about in the context of north america there's really um uh there's a really we're now developing a much more tolerant much, much more accepting uh, culture around marijuana use and you know where I'm also thinking about things like cocaine and thinking about how indigenous people in South America had been people specific people in, in uh, indigenous people in South America have historically and traditionally been using coca leaves from which cocaine is derived uh, for a long time uh, without the same kinds of social ills and 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 problematic social effects Mm -hmm. uh, associated with using that kind of substance so i think a lot of it comes down to uh you know how does so how should i say this i think there's a net benefit to using these kinds of substances right as long as there's a good culture that surrounds the use of that substance and a culture that good culture that 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 supports that kind of substance when there isn't and there is huge criminalization of that kind of behavior and huge stigma associated with that kind of behavior uh then it becomes a net negative uh because then you have people who are being stigmatized as people who use these substances uh you have people who are being pushed into the peripheries of society for using these substances uh and and especially when they when you have people who are using it you know specifically to try to cope with mental illnesses to try to cope with mental health problems and there isn't enough support for people who are dealing with those kinds of issues especially they're very severe and they so there's not enough social resources for them and they're being stigmatized 
and they're being criminalized for doing this the, the one thing that it seems to be helping them deal with their 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 mental illnesses and traumas uh then it becomes problematic so if you're talking about having conversations with people in let's say spain and 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 you're talking about well, let's let's try out some psilocybin or some 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 kind of psychedelic i think how effective it how well it's going to go for them will depend on uh, whether or not there is enough acceptance within society, uh, whether or not they're going to get, um, because you can, you can, I can imagine someone getting momentary relief uh, from whatever anxieties they might be dealing with, but then they lose their job. Uh, and then the <laughs> yeah. and so then so as a as a net benefit or as a net calculus of 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 benefits and cost that I think the cost would win out uh, in 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 that sense. Uh, I'm glad you explained it also thoroughly because it's something that I was thinking about, especially after that that Michael Pollan video. Because now because of Netflix, that video just gets out there. Yeah within all these different cultures and in a way that's a good thing like I hope that helps some of the other cultures become a little bit more open-minded to it but on the other side I was a little bit worried about people that might go out and do it um, and then they hear about like okay one trip and eight yeah. months of long-lasting positive effects and say like, well that depends on the environment yeah that exactly. you're exactly exactly and you know and uh, in, in th there are places where using drugs can be a long time prison sentence uh, and you know it the whatever momentary euphoria one might derive from using that substance if you're in that space uh that's a terrible things are going to happen to you uh you know mm -hmm. we're talking about let's say a place like singapore where there are really really strict substance laws uh you could be hanged you can be caned uh really really uh, traumatic kinds of physical punishment on individuals for being associated with substances and drugs. Yeah, I, 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 I think there's a a responsibility on individuals then to think about if they were to use this, what are the social consequences um, as well, not just thinking about what kind of benefits they get. Um, and this is not to place the responsibility solely on individuals uh, because I think culture should be I my ideal, and this is just me speaking as an individual person. I would hope to see more cultures be more open to um, sort of a more uh, responsible strategy, responsible policies towards uh, substance use, uh, as opposed to just wholesale criminalizing everything. Because criminalizing uh, the use of substances only makes the problem worse. Uh, yeah. And we've seen that already through the prohibition. We're seeing that now through, uh, you know, the, the, the overdose uh, crises in Vermont, in British Columbia, in a lot of places. Um, yeah. And I, 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 I and, and, and so in some ways it's not up to the individual, uh, but it is up to the individual to be aware that yeah. these are the consequences. I completely completely agree with you i sometimes i like to play the devil's advocate on the show just to get a conversation going but here i just yeah. can't it's yeah. just ingrained in me here yeah um but all this also relates to genetic essentialism in a way um especially when we're talking about depression and i think one problem that we have in society is that this idea that depression is genetic which it can be in in some ways Right. But then it kind of leads to this fatalistic view where it's like, oh, it's in my genes. I am a depressed person. And now I need to take, <laughs> let's just say, the American cocktail of all these prescription drugs. And like, yeah. this is the way that I have to solve it. And then, yeah. well, one solution. Yeah, we were talking about the, the psychedelics. But I think an even more important one is the social aspect. Right. Like a big part of depression childhood trauma or just in your adult life if you're not if you don't have good social bonds and there's just so much research that points to that um so that that is one example i think where we can talk about how your your genes 
don't influence necessarily the outcome, right? There is so much that you can do to to change um, how you feel, how you think. I was wondering if you could bring up some other examples from your research with genetic essential, essentialism, and especially when it comes to kind of getting rid of some of these fatalistic views that some people might have. Yeah, you know, one thing I'll, I'll I'll start off by is talking about how there's such quite a bit of research. Um, I'm thinking there's a faculty member uh, by the name of Joe Phelan, and she's done some really, really cool work on uh, how people perceive folks with mental illnesses, uh, depending on whether the condition is described as having some sort of genetic basis or not. And generally, when people think that some some sort of mental illness is associated more with uh, with 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 genetic uh, predispositions or genetic foundations, they tend to perceive those kinds of mental illnesses as being more severe, more serious. And uh, they are also they also often will report uh, being less willing to engage with uh, with with those folks as well. Um, and that's unfortunate because then that that exacerbates the problem, right? Because if someone has, let's say, depression, uh, and you think, oh, that person, you know, they have this family history of depression, and it must be genetic. You know, let's let's you know, and and I, I, it's difficult for them to, and they all they, they also expect uh, they're more pessimistic about the prognosis. They don't expect it to get better that easily, and so then they worry about, oh, you know, then I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to talk to them because you know how can I, I'm not going to be able to fix their depression, and so I I don't want to associate with them, I don't want to socialize with them, and then from the perspective of the person with the depression, that that kind of sucks because then they have the depression plus no one to talk to yeah uh, and then that sort of create perpetuates a self-fulfilling prophecy of well then their depression never gets better um and so that's 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 hugely problematic and and unfortunate that that happens uh but yeah, we also know that there are I mean, one, a lot of things are, are, are structural. People are depressed and anxious because of structural things, because of, of, of um, a demanding work uh, uh, culture in their environment that does not allow them to have good socialization experiences. Um, and a terrible work-life balance is also a huge predictor of that. And we know now that there's there's enough research now that I'm pretty confident to say that reducing the work day number of work days in a week will massively help with this kind of situation with people's mental health um, and there's been multiple studies showing similar findings of people reporting significant increases in well-being by moving to a four-day work week instead of a five-day work week even having that one day extra day off seems to be making a huge difference and I know that for me um it's been hugely beneficial where I have one day where I'm working from home and I'll have a lot more freedom to to work or not work during that mm-hmm. one day in the middle of the week. It's been so beneficial for me uh, and so beneficial for my mental health too. Uh, but uh, so there's 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 the structural piece of it. And then there's the, uh, I think oftentimes people talk about there not being... Uh, uh, enough resources, affordable resources for them to access. Mental health care is in many cases exorbitantly expensive. You know, in Vancouver, for example, going to see a counselor uh, can be about, can set you back uh, about $130, $150 uh, per 50 minutes session. And if you want 70 minutes, that gets to closer to about $170, $180. And clinical psychologists are even more expensive. And uh, psychiatrists are few and far between as well. And so then you need to go through referral processes with your family physician. Mm -hmm. And so just there's not good enough accessibility of uh, mental health resources for people to be able to talk 
through things and you know that kind of talk therapy psychotherapy is a long-term process and um it's 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 one of those things where you need to sink more money into it before you can actually get better right because if let's say we even need let's say five sessions which is a very conservative estimate you need five sessions that you're already sinking always a grand into mm-hmm. into counseling uh and not a lot of people have that kind of money not a lot of insurance policies cover uh, psychotherapy and even when they do cover psychotherapy they will cover let's say we'll cover about a thousand dollars or maybe twelve hundred dollars and that is not really enough for long-term sustainable kind of um uh kind of recovery and people will often talk about how oh yeah i used to go to this therapist and better now i've stopped and then at some point they'll go oh my god i'm relapsing i go talk to my therapist again right now and, and and so uh I, I think it's important to recognize that it's possible for people to lead full and uh, fulfilling lives as long as they have the right support whether they have genetic bases or not that's almost irrelevant here uh and you know people can also do a mix of pharmacological pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy whatever works for them that's totally fine but what we need is uh, for there to be more uh, compassionate social policies uh, around uh, around healthcare support and mental healthcare support in particular. Uh, I so completely I, agree. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that 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 helps. That would help with really anyone who does actually have that kind of, or they they think that they have that gene that codes for depression for which they're none really exists there's no such thing as i had the depression gene um but people assume that that's the case for themselves anyway and become very uh, pessimistic and as you're saying fatalistic about the outlook uh but i think so much of that becomes a matter of a self-fulfilling prophecy right if you don't think that you're able to get better you're less likely to seek help and if you're less likely to seek help then you're not going to get better um, Definitely. And, and, can, and you're talking yeah. about in Canada where it's less taboo than in many yeah. other countries. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, I'm also wondering what you brought up about the um, the work hours. Mm. I'm on the same page. I, I agree. But I, how weird is the research here? Because I wonder if it would have a different effect. Let's say let's say in China, because I teach a lot of Chinese students. Yeah. They work way harder yeah. than Western students. They have way longer hours. Yeah. And of course, I don't know what they're actually feeling, but just from how they behave in class, they seem so much more positive and um, happy, <laughs> to be yeah. honest, than many of my Western students. Yeah. And they're working way harder and longer. Yeah. yeah. So do you think that the shorter work hours would have the same effect in that culture or would it? I think it would, um, and I say this primarily because I, I, you're right. A lot of that, a lot of that research is coming from a lot of weird places. But there's also some research coming out of Japan as well, where there is a very similar kind of overworking culture, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, changing also similarly changing that work. I think most recently it was it might have been Microsoft in Japan that might have experimented with a four day work week. I can't remember exactly which company it was. They, ex- they experimented with a four-day work week, and they were also finding similar boosts in well-being and boosts okay. in productivity as well, where they're more productive working four days than they were productive working five days. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's one of those things where it's about working smarter and not working harder. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, giving people the space to recuperate and to recover. And I think what's important to consider is that the world is very different now than it might have been, let's say, several decades ago, right? I think... Uh, the demand for things have become a lot more uh, a, a lot more severe, uh, and f- for th- more things to get done uh, has has become stronger now than it has in previous decades, and uh, it's it's hard to keep grinding day in and day out for so many days, and it's actually quite uh, striking to me how much of an impact it has simply for having one extra day uh for people to be off yeah 
Good to know. Oh, and just uh, anyone who's tuning into this show for their first time, weird means Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. I've brought it up on the show many times, but if this is your first time tuning in, that's how we're using the word weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. <laughs> um, now, this ties into some of your other expertise, sleep, right? Um, having a little, a little bit more time off means you can yeah. sleep a little bit more, recover. Yeah. Now... Um, just so people have a little bit of a basis here when we're talking about sleep, we've got the four stages. And I think in a lot of the mainstream thoughts about sleep, everyone always talks about REM. Oh, we need REM sleep. What about the REM sleep? Uh, but really, N3 is one of the most important stages of sleep when it comes to muscle recovery, um, aiding in your memory. Um, so just so everyone's kind of on the same page, can you just quickly go over the, the stages of sleep? Uh, I'm not the best person to go over the stages of sleep here, Ashley. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, Dr. Heine <laughs> probably is. I think what we, we're doing, uh, we were primarily talking about, uh, or we were primarily looking at uh, cultural differences in what sleep really means uh, to people and 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 uh what are the effects of and the cultural differences interestingly are the effects of sleep deprivation or what we would define as sleep deprivation in in different places okay so can you tell us a little bit about that yeah so uh i think we often have this um have this assumption that we need eight hours of continuous sleep uh as being as being ideal to for us to be high to, to be optimally functional and yeah nolan you would have learned about this in my class as well um where that that kind of assumption really didn't come about until uh several decades ago um uh, because prior to that uh and certainly prior to industrialization and prior to having reliable artificial lighting uh, people used to sleep in two phases. Humans oftentimes have this biphasic sleep where people would sleep sometime around dusk and then wake up in the middle of the night and then go to sleep again and then wake up around dawn. Uh, and so it, if we were to look at uh, historical data, we actually see a lot of people waking up in the middle of the night and then they're they're engaging in different kinds of activities and they'll note down in their in their diary about being in this like phase in between the two sleeps uh and then they'll and then they'll go back to sleep afterwards and that's actually quite common uh and uh if we also look at you know different uh, subsistence cultures we also see similar kinds of sleep behaviors as well and uh it really didn't seem to be until uh, the advent of artificial lighting that this that that our sleeping sleeping patterns started shifting uh, into something that was more of a a consolidated chunk at night and staying awake uh, in later into the night uh, as well uh, and then uh, and 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 then you know in thinking about cultural differences in in what sleep means what's really interesting is it seems to be the case that Different cultural groups have different ideas about what, how much sleep people are supposed to have. Uh, and people from different cultures also have different I, beliefs about the relation between sleep and health. So, for example, in our research, uh, we found that Japanese participants idealized a, less amount, a lower amount of sleep. People from Singapore and Japan sleep the least, and then they people do. from New Zealand and the Netherlands sleep the most. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes U.S. is also probably some uh, up up there as well. Uh, so uh, in for our in our study, participants from Japan idealized sort of like a six and a half seven hours of sleep, uh, whereas people in Canada were. Uh, we're idealizing around seven and a half to eight hours of sleep. So uh, quite a sort of a stark contrast uh, between between these different groups. And then we were also finding that people in Japan were, they, they tended to expect a much weaker co connection between sleep and health. Right? So we asked people, 
um, on a scale of negative two to positive two, right? Negative two would be expecting that there is a strong negative correlation between sleep and health. In other words, more sleep associated with very poor health. Uh, and, and then positive two is associating a lot of sleep with very positive health. And uh, what we found was that people in North America, people in, the, in, in Canada in particular, uh, were expecting a much more positive connection between sleep and health. Whereas for the Japanese participants, uh, their response was closer to between a one and a zero. So zero, we defined it as, we defined it to the participants as no connection between sleep and health. And so they were somewhere between the no connection to a very weak positive connection. Certainly didn't see uh, the same kinds of necessity or the benefits or the importance of sleep uh, for their health compared to people from, uh, from Canada. And so we're getting this really interesting thing where not only are people idealizing a less amount of sleep, not only are they actually getting less sleep, but they're also uh, have expressing a very different set of cultural beliefs about the connection between sleep and health as well. Now, does it have any positive positive effects for them? Like, are they able to handle sleep deprivation in a different way? Are they? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, are there what? fewer? I wonder about like especially car accidents because that's a big one, right? Yeah. It's... Yeah, as a function of sleep deprivation, we mm -hmm. see greater, higher level a spike in 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 uh, in car accidents in North America when we do the daylight savings and we spring forward an hour, yeah, um, and people lose an hour of sleep often, and 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 then we see we see more car accidents the next day, literally the next day. Uh, yeah, I haven't looked. We haven't looked at car accident data. We've been we had been looking at more of a course. Uh, a course sort of measure of physical symptoms and physical ailments to see whether or not people in Japan were reporting more problematic uh, physical ailments. And we didn't seem to get that either. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, to tell you a bit about the, the design of the study that we did, we asked people to wear sleep watches. Um, yeah, so we... we uh, yeah, so we asked people to wear sleep watches, and uh, the, that, that watch measures when they sleep, estimates when they sleep, which is sort of like what, it, 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 it's basically sort of like what a Fitbit does now. I'm, I was going to ask, these sleep watches that you're using in the study, is this yeah. the same that they're selling to the mainstream market, where it essentially just measures your movement to see yeah. if you're awake or not? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Basically, that's basically and it. And is that good enough to know whether you're in a deep sleep or not? Because I've, I've always wondered that. Like I thought about getting the app once to see if it like measures my sleep. But then I thought yeah. it, how much I move doesn't necessarily mean that I'm in a, in a deep sleep or does it? Uh, it's, it's supposed to, it, it's supposed to measure. So I'll, I'll say this, um, uh, people's estimations of when they sleep is actually all pretty, uh, it matches up pretty well with when the sleep watches estimate that they are sleeping. Uh, and, you know, when people are in a deep sleep, they generally tend to not move. Uh, and, and so when there's a lot of the, the watch will measure what are referred to as awakenings. Okay. And so it will, so, so people over the night will have a lot of these mini awakenings that they are not aware of oftentimes. Uh, and, and that's, that's when you're, you're, you might have jerk movement or you might, uh, uh, you might have a, a, a small series of, of movements in your, in your, in your hand or in your arm. So that's what the, 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 the actigraphy watch is picking up on. Um, and, and generally it's a pretty decent measure of, of, of sleep. Uh, and it's been used by sleep researchers for a long time now. Uh, but what our actigraphy watch was also able to do was to send a beep every certain number of hours to ask them, uh, how sleepy are you right now? And then they'll be asked to indicate on the sleep watch on a scale of like zero to three. I can't remember exactly anymore. It's been a while uh, to indicate their level of sleepiness. And we find that for the Japanese participants, despite sleeping less, they weren't uh, reporting being 
any less sleepy. Um, in fact, sleepiness was uh, higher among uh, Canadian participants uh, compared to Japanese participants. So they were sleeping less. They were expecting a weaker connection between sleep and health. They were idealizing a shorter amount of sleep. Uh, and they were they didn't seem to be, at least we weren't able to correlate uh, the same kind of physical ailments associated with having less sleep. And we also weren't seeing um, the, the, the in, sort of a, a notable increase in, 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 in self-rated sleepiness associated with them. I think it's very important to note where you said you, you couldn't correlate the physical ailments because that's what I, I jumped to right away. I was like, maybe they're just reporting this because in their culture... It's it shows that you're tough that you're not you can handle no sleep right you're like, I'm yeah. not sleepy, um, yeah. but then yeah if you measure this with the ailments as well that's ah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so, so we were measuring things like like headaches we were measuring things like like coughing, um, dizziness you know all these kinds of things we were asking them you know on an, this past week that you were wearing this watch for you know how much did you feel these different kind of symptoms and we weren't getting a lot of of traction a lot of differences from those. Uh, I think what uh, Dr. Heine is so Dr. Heine is the uh, is the 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 sort of the other another faculty member that you spoke to before uh, on this on this project, and uh, I think what he has been thinking about is the idea that uh, it's not so much the, I mean yes people objectively need a a minimum amount of sleep. Um, so like perpetually going for two to three hours is probably not the healthiest thing for, for anyone, really. Uh, but beyond a certain amount, there's a certain level of, of, of cultural variability uh, here where people might be more affected by perceptions of their sleep based on their local ecology rather than uh, some sort of universal expectations of sleep. What I mean, What we mean by that is that people from different cultures will have different expectations about sleep. You need to sleep for six hours, you need to sleep for nine hours, you need to sleep for eight hours, etc. So we expected what, what Dr. Heine and our, the rest of our group was expecting was that it's not, it's not the total amount of hours that you sleep. That's, that's the problem. Um, it is your amount of sleep relative to what your culture expects you to sleep. That is a bigger predictor of of, of problems, um, and we have data right now from one study that seems to be panning out that kind of hypothesis. Um, one of our students, uh, who has been really doing a lot of great work uh, doing the analysis for that research, recently presented this at our undergraduate conference in our in our department, and. Um, yeah, he was showing some data showing how it's uh, cross culturally. We don't we are, we're not able to see you know, we're not able to see that connection between health and sleep hours. But yeah. within the country, they're able to see um, uh, the connection between sleep and 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 uh, and and health. And so that that I think is shows the immense importance that culture has on even something as biological, fundamentally biological as sleep. That That's a oh, it's fantastic. Now, we're coming up on an hour here, so it's, I think it's a pretty good uh, place to end it. But I would just like to say anecdotally, anecdotally <laughs> on an anecdote, I, I can say that it's the same here in Spain. When I first came here about siesta culture, oh yeah, um, I noticed that everyone doesn't actually sleep during siesta. They usually watch TV, yeah. uh, maybe read, or just like just lay in bed. Yeah, and I was like, well, that that's no good. No, like for I I, I took sleep psychology. You need at least forty five minutes to get an additional seven hours of recharge. Yeah, or you yeah, know, yeah. you want to have a full cycle of an hour and a half to actually have the benefits of sleep. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like that at all. And and people really self-report that too. If they just have that hour just to lay back and relax, yeah. they feel fully recharged to then stay up till 12 at night and then wake up at six, which is really common here. Yeah. 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 I, and I think it's, it really highlights 
you know, oftentimes people assume that you know, biological things exist outside the realm of, 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 of social environments and culture. But that's not the case. Um, and yeah. if there's anything that I've learned from uh, studying cultural psychology, it's how ingrained culture is in our biology and how oftentimes we can't tease apart the two uh, as easily as we might assume. Definitely. Well, Ben, I think that's an excellent place to end the episode for today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure seeing you again, and I really appreciate it. Again, listeners, if you want to support the show, go to bornwithoutborders.substack.com. I just changed over my website because the community is a bit stronger there. Uh, Anyways, I hope you tune in next time. There's a new episode every Tuesday.